everyone, and welcome to the all-new Forever Blue Shirts Radio Podcast, powered by ForeverBlueShirts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forever Blue Shirts Radio Podcast. My guest today was drafted in the first round, 13th overall by the New York Rangers in the 1977 draft. He played 12 years in the NHL, the better part of eight years with the Blue Shirts. He scored 274 goals in his career, but holds the NHL's all-time record for most states with beautiful women. Here is number 10, Ron Dugay. Stick taps to Jake Brown. Thanks for letting me do that. How are you, Ron? Yeah, hi. I'm I'm doing well. As you know, um, yesterday was my last uh, podcast or my last um, season, last show to the season. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've been doing it once a week and it's been different for me because most times I'm doing what we're doing now, answering the questions where I was having the opportunity to host and and have friends of mine come on. And it was... um, I really enjoyed it. It's uh, plus I got to work with Larry Brooks. Larry, I've known for over forty years, and I really respect his writing. We agree on most things, um, so it was uh, it was just a real pleasure for me. And, and the other thing is represented the New York Post that uh, I was very familiar with back in the seventies. It was the, the Post, and I believe it was the uh, Daily News, mm-hmm. and um, and so I've kind of gone full circle with. Um, uh, with working with the post. So I've enjoyed it. I love talking hockey and, um, I'm glad to be on your show today. Hi to all the listeners, the viewers. Uh, I appreciate all the Ranger fans. Let's talk about the up in the blue seats podcast. Um, one of the things about the show, and I've, I've heard a few podcasts, what's unique about your show is that as a former player, you bring a whole different perspective. Uh, and I fell in love with the podcast when you had Ty Domi on. I thought that was one of the best interviews I ever heard. Uh, so in the obviously, you're going to do more up in the Blue Seeds podcast. I sure hope so, right? Are we going to get more of that? And can you give a little insight of your transition from a player to a broadcaster? Because your work on MSG was stellar. It was one of the best I saw. And also, you're a natural. I mean, I, I, it sounds like I'm a teammate pumping your tires, but the truth is, you're really darn good. Well, I appreciate it. And you, you don't really know until you do it, until you try it. And um, I like to think that regardless of what I'm doing or what I'm saying, I'm always being me. I don't, um, I, don't, I don't think that I play up to the camera or play up to this is live TV. I know TV, there's an entertainment value to it, and you don't want to be dull, but you also want to be believable and truthful. Mm-hmm. And I've always, um, I've, I've always, I, I respect others who are like that. And so I wanted to be true to myself and true to the fans. And it's either you're going to get good reviews or you're going to get bad reviews. And so I did 12 years of television, and probably the first two or three years were a little bit difficult for me because there's the technique part of doing TV where mm-hmm. there's a formula. You have to work with a producer and you got a producer in your ear and you have a certain amount of seconds. And there's a lot going on in your head where it makes it a little bit harder to be yourself. Eventually, you can relax. Once you know how it works, you can do it. And then, 
of course, you have a you have to have a good relationship with whomever you're working with. Al, I love Bill Pito. Uh, I've had different guys that I've worked with. You know, Steve Valaket was the latest. Anson Carter, uh, Brian Leach, all great guys. So it was a very comfortable situation for me. Plus, I got to talk about hockey and uh, <laughs> very much within my comfort zone. And I think what helped me, not just being a player, but not just having played for the Rangers, not also experiencing the NHL in Madison Square Garden. I actually went out and coached. I coached four years of professional hockey at the minor league level. So I bring a perspective of a player playing at the highest level, playing with some of the best players in the world, but also I coached. I saw the good days. I saw the bad days. I saw what it was like to have all the pressure as a coach. So you bring all that together and uh, you just say it the way it is, the way you want to say it. And, you know, sometimes uh, I would get criticized for being too truthful about the Ranger organization, about certain players. But I think for the most part, people want to hear the truth. So I, I've tapped into all that and doing the podcast. That was so different because the formula was really me. I produced the show. Uh, I had some ideas on what I wanted to do, what I wanted to say. It was all my, mostly all my ideas as far as the guest. I would, you know, Jake uh, Brown, the producer, him and I would talk and I would try to bring in the best guests possible, the ones that are most interesting, the ones that are most truthful and give you good perspective on a certain category. Now, Ty Domi's Ty. Uh, Ty doesn't do a lot of interviews. I've gotten to know him over the years. And so he was willing to come on. And, and when you have a good relationship with guys, they're going to be very open with you, right? They're going to not feel like you're going to try to uh, hurt them in any way or put them in a bad light. So Ty was a great interview. I had a lot of good interviews. And I think my first one, I started it with Mike Keenan. Yes. And uh, Mike, of course, winning the Stanley Cup, all the fans wanted to know a little more on the insights of who Mike is, truly is, which he's a great guy, and what it took to get that team to the finals and winning the Stanley Cup. So, um, yeah, my my, but the thing is, moving forward now, it's like I've gotten all these great guests. Now I gotta continue finding great guests, right? Which I may have to tap into the same ones to come back on the show. Which I think there's always something that we can talk about. So I'll probably bring some of them back. And, and continue to find others, uh, depending on what's going on in the hockey world. Can I, this is the only thing missing from the podcast. If I could just, if, if I could have one thing in the podcast, it would be your jackets. I, it would be your shirts and your jackets that, that like you are known for. You have the best fashion I've ever seen on TV. I love every second of it. Well, I give credit to uh, the one company was uh, Robert Graham clothing. They, gave me all the clothing to wear. At the time, I was um, I was in a different place. I was still living in the 80s. I still thought I was playing for the Rangers, going to Studio 54. So I was still kind of dressing that way. Plus, I'm French-Canadian. So I, I, I really liked the glitter and the flash. And it's part of, again, when you step on the stage, you want to be noticeable. Just like as a player, you step on the ice, you want to be noticeable. I wasn't doing it to be noticeable, but I just have this, I, I know this understanding of, of um, being entertaining. So uh, when you say video, we're talking, because our show's audio, we plan to go audio video at some point, which that would be a lot of fun, because we have a studio at the uh, New York Post uh, building and the offices there, but we weren't able to use it. We used it at the beginning. So hopefully it'll it will get uh, popular enough where 
we're going to want to do audio video and that's where it takes it to another level. Awesome. Actually, I had Jillian Kemmerer on the show uh, right after she was on yours, where she where she you were talking with Alexei Kovalev, and she was lamenting that she didn't get to. She thought I was at, the, at at Studio Fifty Four. I said, Ron and I are close in age, but it's still about a 13, 14 year gap. So I just missed Studio Fifty Four. I didn't get to experience that, but we were both lamenting that. So let's talk a little bit about um, you being a first round draft pick for the New York Rangers. I mean, I can't imagine being a kid, all that hard work and putting on the sweater of an original six team. I mean, that that's gotta be something, right? And, and, you know, you, you just said you're French Canadian, Rod Gilbert, you know, another famous winger, French Canadian. Uh, I mean, that's gotta be something. And now the Rangers have the number one pick in the draft and, you know, Alexi Lafreniere is, Probably 99.9%. I doubt there'll be any trade or nonsense that I keep hearing online about, you know, him um, getting dealt. Uh, the range is going to pick him because he's just by far and above the most talented player in this draft, possibly a generational talent. What tell, talk about first what the experience like for you to be drafted by the Rangers all in all. And also, if you could, what advice would you give Alexi? Well, you might be disappointed with my answer because back then, um, the draft celebration, there was none. Right. There was, there was nothing. There wasn't even a big buildup to the draft. I mean, I can remember it was a Saturday morning. My mom knocks on my door, my bedroom door. It was about 10 o'clock. It's a Saturday morning. She knocks on my door. She says, uh, Ranal? In French, my name is Ranal. Telephone. And uh, who is it? Uh, Bill Waters. Bill Waters. I'm like, why is he calling? I swear to God. The draft was that day. The night before, I went out with the boys back in Sudbury. Some of them uh, played in the NHL. Partied. Woke up. The- it was like, it wasn't like I couldn't sleep that night, not thinking, where am I going to go? There wasn't even a conversation with my agent thinking where I may go. There was nothing. It was no big deal. All I knew is I was probably going to go in the first round. I may go in the top 10. But it wasn't. I wasn't thinking, oh, I want to go to Montreal. I want to go to Toronto. I want to go to New York. I really didn't think of any of that. I, just, I was just like a young kid, wanted to play in the NHL. Wherever I go, I go. It wasn't. I do not remember having a desired team to go play for. I had some players that I admired and liked. One of them, I grew up, uh, Bobby Orr. Um, the other, who I really admired at the age of 14, was Phil Esposito. Why? Because I watched the Summit series, uh, right. Canada versus the Russians. Amazing. Espo stood on his head. His famous speech after they lost game four in Vancouver, uh, he was disappointed with the fans, saying essentially, we're going to go to Russia, we're going to come back, and we're going to win. I'm like, wow. And then you watch him perform and he dominated. So he, that was a big influence on me as far as what leadership looked like. And I, I think I was 14 at the time. So the next thing you know, I get drafted by the Rangers and I, I get on a plane probably for the second time in my life, fly into New York. And then, you know, the, all the energy of New York city I end up in Madison square garden and I end up at their uh, management offices where I walk into a room and there's Phil Esposito. Now, again, we weren't talking a whole lot on cell phones. There was very little communication. I had no idea who was going to be there. You're, Ron, you're going to New York, go sign your contract. Oh, okay. 
Next thing you don't feel, Esposito's there, Rod Gilbert, Steve Vickers, and um, and and there was just um, the photos taken, and I wish I had that photo. And then uh, there was a whole week. I ended up staying in New York for a whole week, <laughs> but um, it was it went I, it went from no big excitement to everything sped up like 100 miles an hour by the time I got to New York. I spent a week there, felt like a month. And I hung out with some of the younger guys. Dave Maloney was there. Ron Gresser was there. Dave Ferris. So it was a um, it was a great week of celebrating. I went there. I actually didn't fly back. I went I went to a dealership, picked out a car because they gave me a signing bonus right away. I, I was third. I think it was um, my signing bonus was uh, hundred thousand dollars. Was back then was a lot of money. And right away I said I need a car. Go in buy a Cadillac. While everybody's buying Corvettes, I go in by Cadillac, big brand new white caddy. That was when I first got within two days. I got a car, right? And then I'm uh, driving by a marina in Long Island, and uh, I'm like, "Wait a minute! I think I need a boat." <laughs> and so I pull in. I pull into this marina. Have you ever driven a boat before? <laughs> yeah. Well, I grew up in Canada. I grew up on a lake. All I didn't right. grow up on a lake. I grew up around lakes, never had a boat because we couldn't afford a boat. And so I go buy this big Cadillac, get a boat, pull a boat behind me, and boom, I get home. And I get home. Again, no cell phones, no communicating with my parents. And my <laughs> my parents see this big white car with a boat pull in their driveway. They have no idea. <laughs> and here I am. I made it. <laughs> That's so amazing. That was my first week as a New York Ranger. That's, that, that's wild. I mean, I'm a dad, I have, you know, a 14 year old kid. So I'm just, I'm picturing like a few years from now, like, you know, like heaves off and then coming home with a boat and a caddy, (laughs) I'd probably lose it. What did you do? You you spent it already? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, here, here's my, after I'm talking about money, my first year, my contract was a hundred thousand dollar bonus, 75,000. For the first year, eighty and eighty-five thousand, right? Which back then I was back then I was before that I was making seventy dollars a week playing for the Subway Wolves Junior Hockey. Seventy dollars a week. Yeah. And um, um, and you would get by with seventy dollars a week because I was living at home. So then a year goes by. The next summer, I'm talking to my accountant, and he goes, um, "Well, Ron, we have good news, bad news. Uh, good news, you made your first seventy-five thousand dollars." Bad news, you spent 85. <laughs> You're going to want to work on that. Yeah. So, That's fantastic. Anyways. Um, you can't yeah. take it with you, Ron. That's what they say. You can't take it with you. So you might as well have a good time. Hey, that first year, I could have written a book for that first month. Of, for every month I was in New York, I could have written a book. So much fun. Awesome. Um, all right. So I was, you know, obviously I was scanning and I was reading and I was like going, you know, I, I, I remember Ron, everyone knows, you know, you're such a, you're such a huge larger than life personality, especially on the ice, right? You, you, you weren't afraid to show your personality, right? You, you break, break the mold. I mean, let's face it. You're the only guy I know who could make, you know, those genes really go ooh la la. So, <laughs> you know, you had that way about you. Um, but you had a, an excellent career. And, you know, I don't know how many people know this, but especially the younger listeners, but 
At the age of 24, you notched 40 goals for the New York Rangers. You had quite a season. Can we talk about that? Because when you start hitting numbers like 40 and 50 goals at the, in the NHL in any era, that's special. Well, I think there was a buildup to that. Um, when you look at my junior career, uh, when I was an underage of 15 years old, I scored 20 goals my first year. I was a first-round pick as a junior, scored 40 goals, which is, was expected as a first-rounder. And the following year, I think I got uh, maybe 28, and then I, I got into the 40s a uh, couple of years as a junior. And basically, it's how my season, how my year started with the NHL. My first year, I scored 20 goals. Then I believe 27. Then I think 28. So I was improving every year, as you should. Yep. And, um, and so what happened is that I had a good playoff against the Islanders. And so... From that, Bill Torrey was the manager, one of the managers of Team Canada. We we're going to play in the uh, Canada Cup. He got me invited as one of the players to try out for Canada for the Canada Cup team. I made the team, and that's that may be one of my biggest achievements, just making that team. When you look at the list of players on that team, most of them are in the Hall of Fame. So I make the team, and we end up losing in the finals to the Russians. And so, but from that. I was in such good shape and I gained a lot of confidence that by the time I got to training camp, I missed most of training camp. Herb Brooks was there. He's a, his first year coach. And the thing with Herb is that um, his system allowed me and our, uh, my teammates to be not so robotic, not be so north and south and dump in. We were more a cycling team. And, um, and so I was, I, I didn't have to be stationary so I could use my speed. And then he gave me Mark Pavlich, Mark Pavlich, great hands, great sentiment. And so the combination, it was a combination of various things. And that's why a lot of these things happen. If you got some skill, the coach has to believe in you and he has to know how to play. you. He has to know what type of sentiment or winger to give you. And he's got to give you quality. I said, so everything lined up for me at the right time. I've been scoring. I've been getting better every year. I show up in great shape. I got Mark Pavlich, and I started scoring early. And then from that, I just end up scoring forty goals. Um, so it was um, it was a a season of um, of learning. Uh, I was maturing on and off the ice, <laughs> uh, and so that was the one thing that Herb liked and disliked. He he appreciated the fact that I can compete on the ice as hard as I did knowing that how much partying I was doing. So, but he was, you know, that, that kind of, that was all new to him to deal with a celebrity type player where he had coached college kids, where he had his strings on everybody, where all of a sudden he's got to be coaching me and Greshner and Barry Beck. And, and now he's coaching men and um, we had our own ways about us. And so I always felt as long as I pay, played hard score goals that, don't worry about what you're what you're reading in page six. You know it's mostly true, but don't think about it. <laughs> I try to tell him that he didn't buy into that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's funny. Like uh, I remember having a Farrah Fawcett poster in my room. <laughs> uh, you were dating Farrah Fawcett, God rest her soul. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that, that's pretty. Yeah, celebrity player. That that would that would be <laughs> would be an understatement, sir. <laughs> God bless. Um, yeah. But, you know, that I want to talk about Herb Brooks a little bit, too. Right. So um, everyone, you know, it's funny. I remember I remember Herb Brooks. 
Um, I also, you know, I was young when the miracle on ice happened, but I've digested so many documentaries and, and whatnot. And then the movie miracle came out with Kurt Russell. I don't know if you saw it. I'm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Kurt yeah. did it. I, he did a great job. Now I, I was going to ask one time. I met him in LA one time at a practice rink. I was out there just skating a little bit at a practice rink up in LA and leaning against the boards was Kurt Russell. Huge hockey fan. And I'm like, what's he doing here? I had, I, I don't remember why he was there, but him and I had this one-on-one. He couldn't have been more regular. And I'm trying to think, I must, I don't know if I was playing for the Kings at the time and I was just going for a skate. There was a few of us on the ice, but he hadn't to have a connection to someone who was there. And I don't know. All I knew is here I am just leaning against the boards, him and I, just two guys just talking hockey. So a uh, great guy. And he, the way he played her Brooks, he played it to a T because I, I knew her. I was with him for two years. So he did a wonderful job. And then of course, Pavlis, no Pavlis, Dave Silk, uh, Robbie McClanahan. Uh, how many, there was about three or four that ended up in New York. So uh, that was really well done. Awesome. Um, Speaking of Herb, I remember listening to you and uh, some of your, you know, up in the blue seats, and you did talk a little bit about being traded uh, because Herb was having some of the difficulties with the whole page six stuff. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because you you did get traded, but then you did come back to New York. I'd like to know about coming back too. Well, when I came back, when I came back to New York, um, so when I go to Detroit and I have three pretty good years in Detroit, at least yes. two. And then the third year, we get a coach, Harry Neal, um, a nice guy, but probably the worst coach in hockey. He decided to break up our line of myself, Stevie Eisman, Johnny O'Gronick. We're one of the best lines in the NHL. He decides he wants balance. It breaks up our line and things aren't going well. And at the trade deadline on my third year in Detroit, I get traded to uh, Pittsburgh because they were looking for someone on the right side to play with Mario. And so I thought, well, this ain't so bad. I just finished playing with Stevie Eiserman. Now I'm going to go play with Mario. So I ended the season with Mario. I get a point a game with him. And so the following year, I was going to go back to Pittsburgh. And here's where my problems started to happen. And this is just life in general. Bad bounces, good bounces, bad bounces. I go to training camp. I show up to training camp. And I had ordered some sticks, Victoriaville. And I, had, I only had one stick. So by the time I got there, I was expecting sticks. Well, I get there, and uh, my fir- I have a stick. I end up breaking it right away. And I'm to the train. Where are my sticks? He says, Ron, we got bad news. The stick company, their warehouse, burnt down. Oh, my. All your sticks are burnt. So I'm in training camp, and I have no sticks. And I w- I've- back then, you didn't really uh, figure out lies, uh, height, on your sticks, angles, curves. I had a stick that I liked in junior and I just kept it. And I used something similar when I got to the pros, but I never spent time trying to figure out what is it exactly do I have? So I wasn't able to, so I had to take another stick off the shelf, any guy's stick and all the lines are different. The curves I'm in training. I'm struggling in training. I can't even make it. I'm, I'm struggling to receive a pass, make a pass to Mario. Next thing I know, they have someone else playing with Mario Season starts, I'm on the second, I'm on the third line, and I'm struggling. I don't have my own sticks. So then because I was struggling, 
um, in New York, what's happening in New York, Espo said to me, listen, if I go back to being a manager, I'm going to get you back to New York. I said, okay, great. So now he's, uh, he calls Pittsburgh, is Ron available? And essentially said, well, yeah, he's and they're, in their mind, I'm struggling. So it was an easy for him to get me back. So I think the trade for, I think it was a Chris Contos trade. So then I bat back to New York, but I get back in New York. I still don't have sticks. So I end up getting a stick that I put, that I, I managed to put together that I thought was my original stick, but it wasn't. I get a stick. It took me three or four tries at getting sticks. And back then, it wasn't, it wasn't like you're going to get sticks within 30 days. It took forever. So I get to New York and I'm, I'm not the same guy. I don't, my tools aren't right. And I can tell you, if you know, your tools don't right, it, it's just not the same. So I struggle a little bit there and then I'm in New York. And then uh, I say, and I'd been, I married a woman from California. I told Espo, I said, Espo, if you get a chance, trade me to LA because I want to retire there. And because I wasn't doing really well, Espo needed a defenseman. and Mark Hardy becomes available. <laughs> And, and I remember Robbie Fatorks, the coach in LA, and Robbie and I were line mates. We liked each other. So Robbie wants, he, he sees the opportunity. I want to get dudes on this team, but he has no idea that I've been struggling. <laughs> so there was a trade there. I end up in LA and uh, I had a decent season there, but it's still, once you lose your confidence, you end up back on the third line. You don't get that power play time. It's not the same. So I never did get my confidence back. And then in L.A., Gretzky shows up, and now we got two really good lines. I'm still on the third line. I'm, playing with, I'm still playing with John Tinelli, Mike Kusunensky. Yep. But I, now I, in my mind, I said, okay, if I'm not scoring goals, I better be the best defensive player possible. So I became a defensive specialist. That's what happened to me at the end of my career. And, and if you're like 32 and you're not scoring goals, if you're not doing enough, then they're going to go and get a younger player. And that's what happened to me. So when I look back at my career, I mean, I played 12 years. I should have played 16. Anyways, what was your question? <laughs> no, I, you kind of nailed it. I mean, it's true. I mean, hockey players, uh, you know, even today, superstitious, routines, equipment, they got to skate, they got to sharpen their skates the same way. Yeah, it could have a serious impact. I mean, it's, it's that, that confidence in, in sports well, is obviously everything. Well, back then it was harder to fix a problem because you didn't quite understand what the problem was. Now there's so much science be, be behind everything. Like you can call the stick company. Yeah, we got your pattern. We have it right here. Like there's no way. Like I had Victoriaville. There's no way. They didn't have my pattern to say, okay, give it to Sherwood, right? Like they didn't keep patterns. So nowadays you can change things within a week and get another stick. Uh, tweak it another eighth or do this or do that like your skates and blades and all these things, there's such a science to it and the way your skates are sharpened. Like from one trader to another, a lot of them didn't even know what they're doing. They're just sharpening like this, right? They're just going back and forth and sharpening everyone's skates the same way. The hollow, half-inch hollow. I mean, it, it's like, it was, you had to figure, I ended up buying my own skate sharpening machine because I didn't like how they sharpened my skates. I, I was doing my own skates at the end. Wow, wild. Wild. Yeah. You know, I had a, a former teammate on of yours uh, a little while back. It was one of my one of my, one of the most fun interviews I had. Tom Laidlaw, total rip. That guy is funny. He's um, so boring. 
So one of the questions I asked him, and he went on and on a little bit about it. Well, and I like to ask, like, who is your favorite teammate? And also, give me like one of your favorite locker room stories that you could actually tell. Because <laughs> I, I I know a couple of other players that I've talked to, and there's got stories you can't tell, <laughs> yeah. and especially in the hotel. Yeah, I got stories you can't tell. <laughs> so are you asking me your your favorite teammate, somebody you play with? And your your favorite locker room story? Um, probably the most entertaining, the most fun, and the guy I uh, respected maybe probably the most was Nick Fatio. Nicky, um, Nicky uh, was obviously Nicky, but he um, as um, he was a police officer on the ice, Toughest and he ever protected saw. his teammates, and he had a passion for it. He didn't mind doing it. If someone messed with you, you had to mess with Nikki. And he was just a lot of fun. I had him as a roommate for a while. And Prankster, my goodness. Oh, my God. It was all the time. I mean, all the time with Nikki. Every He was always up to something. I mean, he would, by the time he'd get to the rink, he'd have an idea on something that he wanted to do to someone. And so he always kept the dressing room light. Um, and where I think he understood he needed to do that is whenever we were in Philadelphia and Boston where it was going to be a war. Well, Nikki was walking around just having fun. I'm like, so I'm thinking, wow, he's, he's probably going to have three fights tonight. And he seems pretty calm, but he knew that he needed to be that way. Cause if he wasn't, if he showed any kind of tension, then it would rub off another guy. So Nikki was always up to something all the time. And, uh, I was part of a few of his, um, um, pranks on different players. And, um, you might I might have talked to the talked about this on a podcast. It was when I think it was my it might have been at the end of my first year. We're playing Buffalo in the playoffs. We get eliminated by Buffalo, and so we're having a party. We're always we're always at we're at this bar, and uh, we had a rule back then that uh, if one player was going to one place, we all went all the time. So we're at this place. The end of the season, we're having a good time, and the other rule we had is by the time you got back to the hotel room, you weren't allowed to really close your door or lock your door. It was an open door policy. Do not, no matter who you're with, keep your door open until two. That way guys come in. They want to be able to walk into anyone's room, socialize, and just kind of see what's happening, right? So do not lock your door. <laughs> well, sure enough, um, Nikki at the time was single. I was single, and I think it was Dave Maloney, and it might have been Steve Vick. I can't remember who it was, but two guys were talking to a couple ladies that Nikki and I were talking and they left early and they're back in their rooms. And we know that we have a good idea they're in that room. And so Nikki and I go knock on the door and there's, we can hear a little whisper, quiet, quiet. <laughs> and so, um, so they were this with these ladies that we wanted to talk to also. And so, so the room is at the end of the hall, and at the, on the wall at the end of the hall is this fire hydrant. Not a fire hydrant, but a fire hose. And so that's when Nikki takes the hose out, oh, no. puts it underneath the door, and turns it on. Oh, no. Turns it on. I mean, it was – it almost blew through the window. <laughs> I mean, it it's so – within maybe uh, – he probably let it go for about 30 seconds to a minute. It soaked the whole room dripping downstairs the room downstairs calls management next thing you know within an hour got police at the door and um and of course nikki and i we're both in our room playing dumb like what what what's going on 
Who did that? that? That was one of the things that Nikki thought. This, I think, this is going to be funny. Let's just let's flood them out of their room. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh my god, uh, that's a great story. Um, we're going to wrap up the show with um, another one of your former teammates, um, John Davidson. Uh, you played with JD. Uh, JD is now the president of the Rangers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Seeing a buddy of yours, a teammate now actually running an organization that you played for and love. Yeah. I, you know, I always wonder how did you even, how did you get to that place where even where he started to have that opportunity to be a manager? I, I'd have to go back because I know he ended up, he was in, he was St. Louis, Columbus, mm-hmm. moved around, did well, good track record. In fact, he believes, well, he believes there's a lot of truth on that Stanley Cup team. Some of those players he brought in, brought in at a young age. And so obviously he knows his stuff. He knows his hockey. And, uh, but I would love to really know how he actually had that first opportunity because it was nothing that was on my mind. Like I wanted to start talking to coaches and managers about a position here and there. Cause I never thought I wanted to, to be part of that, but obviously he did. I don't know what his actual first job was. Well, we knew he did TV and I think he had a relationship with the St. Louis owners. Cause I think that's where he started his that's career. He started. Yep. Yeah. So I believe that the owners probably say, JD, why don't you come in? We, you know, we hear you. We know, you know, hockey. Why don't you just come in and help us out? And I think that's how it started. And obviously then you got to figure it out. So he did a good job, good track record. And for him to come full circle, he started in St. Louis and then now back in New York. Um, I, I like to think that the Rangers are in good hands because, uh, he's done it. And I think he, he can take credit for the team who won the Stanley cup with the St. Louis blues. So I think it's just a matter of time, give him enough time that, um, he knows the formula. He knows what it takes to go deep in the playoffs, uh, the type of players, type of coach, type of players, uh, because he's been there. He's done it. He, in 79, we went to the finals. He knows the compete level. He knows the character of players. They can't all be skilled players. You need guys that are going to grind it out. You need leaders, uh, not too many followers. So he understands all that. It's just a matter of it just, he has said it. It just, you got to be patient. It takes time. You don't want to rush into it. You don't want to just try to buy players. You can't really do that anymore because you have a salary cap. But I think he understands. He knows the formula. And you need a little bit of luck, which he did. Got that luck the other day. Oh, yes. In the lottery. Yes. Right? All of a sudden, we're speeding things up. I, I think that um, he, the most important part of his team, he has. And I think the coaching. I think Coach Quinn is a great coach. I love him. A teaching coach. Yep. And that's really important. You can bring all the players you want. But if you don't have the right coach to get them to play a certain way, Right. Uh, you're just not, you're, you may have a decent regular season, but it ends up some of these coaches will get out coached in the playoffs. So I think he's the type of coach, which even this year, I think that it was a learning experience for him, Coach Quinn. Mm-hmm. Um, he got, he ran into a, a well coached team with Rob Brendamore, experienced team. And I think moving forward, this is going to help him understand it. And although, you know, he didn't have enough time. I mean, he's got a young team. You play one exhibition game. I mean, what can you do with that, right? I think he had a young team. He needed more games. So um, they competed. They just, they were uh, 
Carolina just shut him down. They did a great job yeah. of shutting down. So I don't want to take away from anything of what he's done. I think it'll be a learning experience. You come next season, um, I, I expect good things. And I think within three years, the Rangers are going to be in the finals again. You've read within my mind. Years. That was my question. That was, that was my next follow-up question is, what do you think, where do you see the Rangers and you know, how before they become competitive and a contender again? I, I think they're, if you look at the goaltending, yep. we know goaltending, the importance of goaltending. Uh, Igor, he's that guy. I really do. And um, they, um, I talked with, I asked the question to uh, Larry Brooks, and he believes they could use a, a really good, solid second line centerman. Mm-hmm. Da ding, da ding, Kevin Hayes, da ding. Yeah. I mean, it did. did. They, he wound up getting Truba throughout that with that first round pick. So it did kind of work out. And the fact that the, they really didn't have a, you know, a snarling top shutdown defender. Uh, I know Truba didn't have the greatest of years to start off, but there's a lot of acclimation on it, you know, for his part too. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he looked, uh, he looked better in this playoff. He was ready. Yep. Played hard. He's competing. He's still finding, he's trying to find his way um, because he's, he's been given a lot of responsibility because he didn't have to be like a really good top four guy when he was in Winnipeg. So um, I think he's coming. He's, he's showing that he can be that guy. I would just, I, I just, I want to see him be a little more intimidating because there are times where there's some bigger guys who are pushing and shoving in front of the net. Yep. And we need someone who's, I, you can't count on uh, Del Zotto to be fighting guys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's willing to fight guys, but you need a big stat that that's going to stand there. Like, uh, you know, someone is, is getting a little bit too pushy in front of your goal. You need someone to drop the gloves, send a message. And I, you know, so he's done it a couple of times, but I would love to see him do it a little bit more, be more intimidating that way, or get another guy that's willing to do it. Well, we, we will see. We will see. I, you know, I, I heard the, uh, you know, the season finale podcast. Uh, I heard Brooks I, you know, listen, if there's a number two center that can be had, uh, I say go after him. You know, I know Ryan Nugent Hopkins is a name I've put forth with the Oilers because he will be an unrestricted free agent, not this summer, but next summer, thus making him possibly moved at the trade deadline if they can't come to terms. I think he would look pretty, pretty incredible with uh, Panarin himself. Um you know, but even if it's not there, I, I think Strom has done an admirable job. So it's it's hard to knock Strom. And you know, being an offensive player, you watch the Rangers all the time. We could wrap up with, you know, should the Rangers give Strom a contract? And do you see him as a good fit for as a second line center for another couple of years on this team until maybe either Philip Heedle or somebody else comes along? Um, I I liked how he performed with Panarin. He seems to be a good fit. If you can get him at the right price. I would prefer to put the money towards a stud defenseman. If I have a choice, if he's not too expensive, if you can get him at $4 million and because you're going to save money on Lundqvist, um, I don't know if you spend more money on a second-line sentiment, how much more you're going to get out of him on what you're getting with his fit with Panarin because right. he's playing well with Panarin. So I would rather, if I had extra money, I'd be looking if the if I had some options – I would rather get a top four defenseman who's got some size and has got some balls to him that play that would play tough. I would rather do that versus 
try to spend a little more on a second line sentiment that I don't know how much, yes, you can find a guy on the second line sentiment that could be a little better, but I'm telling you, he looked, he looked fine. Yep. And he was, he was really coming in his own and he just has to make sure that he trains hard enough where his legs are strong enough where he can get as much speed of his legs as possible. And he was getting, he got a little bit quicker last year. And as long as he continues to work hard and get lower body strong, where he's got the speed to get the pucks. And uh, he was, uh, he turned out to be a decent player. So I, to me, I would rather put it towards another defenseman. As far as Heedle, I don't know about him. <laughs> uh, yeah, jury's out. Huh? Jury's still out on him. Right. Well, that, that I can give you a five minutes on that, but we're not going to do that now. <laughs> so uh, you just have to, let me just say that you got to be, if you're going to draft a centerman in a first round, you better know that within a couple of years, he's going to be on your top two lines. Number one, number two, if you're thinking about winning the Stanley cup, is he that guy on those top two lines that's going to grind away to four series, uh, four different series? Does he have character to play hard like you expect out of a uh, sentiment on the second line? Does he have that in him? That's what you got to think about when you're drafting in the first round a sentiment. You're thinking, can I win the Stanley Cup with this guy? So my question to you, do you think you can win the Stanley Cup with him? as a second line center, because he's not, he's a skilled guy. He's not really a third line center. And maybe, you know, you draft in the first round, you're thinking the guy in the top two. So I'm, I just don't, I just know what it takes. When you look at St. Louis, I mean, those big teams, they grind it out and they're tough and they're hard to play against. Is he hard to play against? Is he going to be hard to play against? This point? No. And he better, he better find out just exactly what kind of player he wants to be. I think when I, he seems to be in the middle. Like, do I want to play it tough? Do I want to play it finesse? No, no, he can't. He's not a. He's not going to play tough. He's not. He does. He's. He's a very nice kid. Very nice kid. All right. He's young, but he's a very. I know. When I was 17, 18, I had a. I know guys are eighteen. They're going to be the same. In fact, they get worse. If you got to grind to you, toughness to you, you usually have it when you're 16, 17, 18, 19. Yes, he's young, but if you don't, if it's not in you, it's not going to be there. That's what everyone is saying about Alexi Lafreniere is that he's got some serious competitive sandpaper to his game. That I spoke to a guy who watched him. He said, I saw him live. I cannot tell you if I've ever seen another player jump off the boards with such determination. And literally, as soon as his shift comes up, he's like a rocket going after the puck. Yeah. Yeah, that's a compete level. But they're, they're also, I, I don't know this about, but a toughness, because once you start playing in the NHL, you got to start playing against men. They're going to be leaning on you and they're going to get chippy on you. Are you going to, like, I've seen Heedle take shots, like cross, he just kind of, he, he just like, he was like a child. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Guy told me he was, that Lafreniere is borderline dirty. Well, that's what, here, here's a good example. Crosby. Yes, he said he nice could, guy. Just like the Crosby, borderline dirty. Okay, well, Crosby's a good guy, nice kid. But you get him on the ice, you cross check him. Oh expect yeah, expect something back. Didn't he? Didn't right. he? Didn't he smash a guy's hand and make him lose his fingers? <laughs> like, didn't he slash somebody and cost him a finger? I don't know, but he'll do that too. That's what I'm talking about. Like, you gotta, you gotta have, you can't, you can't have someone try to intimidate you. 
You right. can't because he, I tell you why. Everyone on the bench, everyone up in the stands sees it. If you get a check and you just kind of put your head down, skate away, and everybody else said, oh, we got him. We got yep. him now. Mm-hmm. We can intimidate him. That was Messier's game, right? He'd get on yeah. the ice. First thing he'd do is hit the biggest guy, Stevens. I remember the first goal the Rangers scored in the Devils game. Uh, it was game two in 94. He levels Stevens behind the net, scores a goal. Like, and that's what he was known for, taking out Doug Gilmore early in a game. Yeah. Just give you an elbow. Yeah. Now, th- that's a special player. I'm not saying that he has to be that way. But if someone is trying to intimidate you and they're giving you like a dirty shot and you just put your head down and skate away like it didn't happen. Yeah, fight back. He knows it and everybody on the team knows it and it, it'll keep going all the time. And that's what I'm talking about because come playoff time, that escalates, right? <laughs> everybody comes after you. It's and every if you second can't, of the game. If you're going to be worried about who's going to come after you while you're playing a game, it's going to take away from your game. So um, I gave you my five minutes on him. I like – he's a good awesome. kid. He's a skilled kid. But long-term, winning the Stanley Cup – I don't know. I would have never drafted. Let's put it this way. I'm going to finish. I would have never drafted him in the first round. Ladies and gentlemen, I couldn't have asked for a better guest. I couldn't ask for better insights to give to you guys. Ron Duguay is literally one of the best guys on the radio right now with his podcast. Love his work. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Ron Duguay 10. You can also check out Cameo. He'll give you a shout out. He's as awesome as can be. Yeah. Anyway, Ron, I can't thank you enough. Anything else you want to plug before we go? Um, no, you can find me. Did you say I'm on Twitter and Instagram? Twitter and Ron Instagram Duguay at Ron Duguay 10 I mean, yeah. I can say your name all day. It's it's just got a beautiful sound to it. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait to get the response of, of, of me saying I would have never drafted Hedl. <laughs> all the haters are going to come out. Hey, what do you mean? You also get a bunch of people who agree with you. That's life today. Hey, it's an opinion. We should all be able to have one. Yeah, well, that's just me. I could be wrong. Listen, I could be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong with this kid. I'm just saying. I just I've been to the finals. I've played tough NHL hockey. I know what it's like to compete, and everybody's got a grind, man. It's a grind. That's why Boston and St. Louis, these teams, these bigger teams, uh, you know, they're tough to play against because everyone is hard to play against. You can't have any soft players. Anyways, good talking with you. I'm gonna go play tennis.